three different crystals. The man looked into the crystal pitcher of punch. The man looked into the crystal water from the geyser. The man looked into the crystal ball. These things, although they share similarities on the surface, the context of each one of these, uh, though the thing itself, crystal, it changes the context and the application of one, not the others, makes the one sinful and not the others. Today, we're going to begin looking into what happens when the gospel of the kingdom spreads into other places and outside into the pagan worlds or that is the semi-Jewish world of Samaria. Uh, If you were here last week, you read with us about Samaria and the gospel preaching. This is a sort of flashback that is hearkening to the time before what was Samaria like before the gospel came. So we saw that it it came last time and now we're, we're jumping back in time, as it were, to see what was going on. If you don't know, uh, Samaria itself was a group of people by the Jews in Jerusalem who would be uh, despising those of Samaria. They were understood to be a sort of half-breed of the Jewish nation. Although Samaria, at one time in the past, was the inheritance of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in its very beginning, if you look at Israel, it's right directly in the center. Um, and then when the kingdoms come about, you have a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They are part of the northern kingdom. Yet you can go and, and read about what happened in 722 BC. That is the deportation or one of the exiles that happens. And in Second Kings 17 you see that there is an intermingling of the worship of other gods with the people of Israel. That is, these Samarians or Samaritans. Um, in this section, in Second Kings, what, what you see also, not only is the perversion of worship, you see the deportation of some peoples and what nations used to do and I don't know if it's done today. When a nation is is conquered, they bring in peoples from other lands. And so they intermarried and interbred. So this is why they would be understood as a half-breed sort of people. Even Jesus affirms this. In in Luke 17, 8, Jesus calls them another. Another, or literally, or a foreigner. They're from another ethnicity. They've intermingled and and become. Um, are, are not fully Jewish anymore in that way. So they can be understood contextually to be another nation uh, or another, another people group that were. So this is in this context as there has been a, a, a perversion, as it were, of, of the Jewish bloodline, uh, which was to be kept pure because the Messiah is coming through a part of the nation. They also are in a place where they had perverted the worship. It makes sense that we see in this place occultic practices. We see magic on the scene, and and so it should not be regarded as a surprise. This is in the realm of the occult, O-C-C-U-L-T, occult. 
Merriam-Webster defines this. Uh, matters regarded as involving the action or influence of supernatural supernatural powers or some secret knowledge of them. This is the idea of what's going on. You should, <clears throat> although there's lots of practices that we could enumerate, and we will a little bit later for our, our modern context, you shouldn't think of the illusionists that you've seen on TV with smoke and mirrors. Mainly, you, you should think of, um, of sorcerers and witches. This is the context that the gospel has come into. Uh, that which there's involvement with spirits and communication with spirits such that power is had and signs are had, wonders are had. And before the gospel comes, the people of Samaria are really focused and holding attention here. <clears throat> now, I want to make two qualifications because I know our context. I hope <clears throat> to alert us to two dangers. And one of them, I recognize that in times past, there has been a, a very heavy emphasis or even cultural experience of an atheistic worldview that talks about just the natural material world. You know, you, you and I probably both, if you grew up going to public school, were, had to deal with people talking about the ridiculous idea of macroevolution. It's absolutely horrendously unbiblical and destroys lots of what the Bible teaches. But um, you and I come from a context where people have a predisposition to believe those sorts of things, evolution and so forth, which means they're operating in a, a naturalist, a materialistic world worldview, a, a materialist worldview, so that all that you see is lights and clockwork sort of thing. Whereas as Christians in conservative churches, we, we don't even realize sometimes when things have crept into our mind and when anything supernatural comes up, we get a little bit uh, shifty in our seats and we go uh, become uncomfortable because some of these things um, that we've heard, we have seeped into our own thinking. But I just want to hasten to point out that the, the Bible itself is written by a spirit. The Bible itself is written by the movement of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And, and so human agents are carried along by the, the power of a greater being, a supernatural being. And so we also believe in historical judgments that are extremely supernatural. We believe in angels and fallen angels called demons. Uh, we should not have a hesitancy in this area to think spiritually. We, we live in a very uh, haunted world, as it were. Uh, I also must point out that the Christian worldview is a revelational worldview. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I kind of wish, because a good word to talk about Scripture is Revelation, I kind of wish we just called it the apocalypse. That's what it means. That's what the word is in Greek. Um, because I don't want you to be confused by those. A revelational worldview, that means God has revealed what was in his, what is in his mind to us. He has, he has revealed it in inspiring it and putting it into words. So whenever we go out and look into the world, 
whether we come across the supernatural, whatever we come across, what we are supposed to interpret it as is how does this correspond with what is written? God has spoken. And so whatever categories people want to throw out there, we could talk about the world of the occult and I'm not going to talk about it today. Although one of the congregants and I talked about this this, uh, last week about UFOs or UAPs or whatever. Um, What we need to do in any conversation is to take that information and go, well, what does the Bible say? What categories should I be thinking in? We, We must resist any temptation to wholesale take somebody else's categories and use them uh, because they very well could be attached to a worldview that is totally opposite of what the bible teaches so in everything although god hasn't spoken exhaustively uh to everything like he hasn't written us a a biology textbook biology is not possible outside the christian worldview Science is not possible outside the Christian worldview at all. Um, in fact, there's no reason to believe tomorrow will be like today unless the Christian worldview and the Christian God has created in an orderly way that we can study and bank on those things which we have found by our, our testing, our methodology of science, really a methodology of experiencing nature and, and scrutinizing it. So let me just give you a verse here in terms of one thing that I want to qualify is God hasn't spoken exhaustively about everything, but foundationally. So we can read a verse in first Peter like this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It says through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That verse is exhaustive. Although the Bible hasn't spoken exhaustively uh, in every detail about what we should think and believe in terms of every little thing in the universe we could talk about. The Bible doesn't talk about silicone chips and stuff like that. However, those things are to be understood as being explained from a biblical worldview. It it furnishes us everything we need to do. Deal with this in a righteous way to use it for God or not to do things in a God glorifying manner. So it's endless. We, it teaches us how to be righteous in the sciences. It teaches us how to be righteous in history and in, in our handling of it. Righteous in any intellectual property and thinking. That's what it is. It's simply called, if you want a biblical term for this, is the sufficiency of scripture. It is sufficient for even the most mundane and basic tasks like eating and drinking. Now that you have that, I have more to say because this topic is wide and I really debated on all that I have to say. We're, we're going to take this really slow and we'll, we'll spend another week on this topic. But one thing that you must know is the context in the Bible for this discussion as it were this context i'm going to read to you from an extremely important passage you can write it down um, highlight it you need to know this in your bible and go here because our world is becoming whether you experience it or not if you go on a college campus today if you look at some of the most famous names 
uh, Joe Rogan, most famous podcaster, the world of the occult, those magical type things that this is related to is, is becoming extremely popular, extremely popular. It's going to be very mainstream and you're going to have to give a Christian answer for these things. You're going to have to warn people. And so one of the places that you should know by heart in your Bible so that you can say why it's wrong for Jonathan Rumi to talk to Lonnie Frisbee and pray with him after he's dead. If you don't know him, he's the, he's the guy who's Jesus in the, in the chosen. He's a, a Roman Catholic mystic who has, uh, violates these sorts of things all the time. That is, when you go, this is Deuteronomy 18, 9 and following, when you come into the land, that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. There's our connection directly. Or a charmer or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And because of these abominations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before Yahweh your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, Yahweh your God has not allowed you to do this. There is an absolute prohibition against receiving knowledge in certain types of ways or in engaging in things that have to do with those who have, uh, who have pursued the dead. That's why we don't, we don't talk or communicate with dead saints or the like. We are bound to a particular word. There is knowledge in the universe to be had, lots of it. And God has detailed for us all that he wants us to know in this particular regard. We are not to trust any sort of spirit other than the spirit of the living God, which has breathed out his word so that one of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29, a little bit later. The secret things belong to uh, the secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The, the same applies. There are secret things that belong to God and, and things for us. Yahweh has revealed to us a text, a, a word we have. Millions of words, as it were, hundreds of thousands of words from God. We don't need another in any other way. We don't need supernatural revelation other than the Holy Scriptures. If you, um, these things are absolutely prohibited. In fact, these nations who did not have a prophet are being judged for this kind of action. Um, We are commanded to engage in that which the spirit is breathed out. And you can think about listening to spirits, even in the form of an animal, such as a snake. You, you know how it worked out in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. They pursued knowledge of a spirit 
That is the dragon of old, right? And it was forbidden to them. We must pursue knowledge and experience and in intellect in godly ways. The, the Bible prizes, let me say as a qualification, the Bible prizes godly creativity and inquiry. It's, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's the glory of kings to search it out. We're supposed to find out things, uh, how, how to mass produce uh, Bibles so that we can give give them to other countries that don't have money to have them. We're, we're supposed to find out things in the universe. There's no prohibition on inquiring into God's world, but there is a complete prohibition be, uh, to pursue spiritual knowledge in a different way. There are malevolent beings in the universe and ideologies and practices which are idolatrous and will destroy you. And therefore we must be very careful to adhere alone to the word of God. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple things in the text. Now that I've sort of set up the category of magic and uh, you know what's going on here. The first thing that we see in our text is that these signs that were being referred to the the amazement that came was because there's supernatural signs and wonders coming from this sorcerer simon he tapped into what we from a biblical worldview would say is demonic power and he was working some sort of signs that captured the people of samaria's attention so we saw previously that spirits were coming out Uh, when the preaching of the gospel came, that there's not only an involvement of spirits in Simon himself, but in the people who were participating in this man's um, divination. Luke further tells us that the extent of the power that this man had and the influence that he has is they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest And then they were saying something about him, namely that he was the power of God called great. In essence, this man is doing miraculous, wonderful things, but he is um, brought, he has a message about himself. And these people have bought into that message and it's a, a rival claim to the Lord Christ. It is that he is the power of God. In essence, he is saying he is like the Holy Spirit. He's not God, but he has God's power. Really, this is the whole point of the book of Acts. There is the power of God that is moving forth through the Spirit of God in the church. And this man is amassing followers by getting them involved in a demonic system by first amazing them and drawing them in. And I hope you see here that um, what happens to the people is they become possessed, some of them, many of them it even says. So this system, uh, which captivated them in their eyes and like, oh, whoa, it's like if you were to see stuff, I guess whatever's going on here, that is actually miraculous, it'd be like seeing a cart car crash. We all have the temptation to slow way down and see what's going on. Uh, and that's the thing that draws them in. But, but you can't separate 
the, the two, if, if you're going to see and be involved in these practices that are going on, you're also going to be involved in the spirit behind them and the, the message here. The, the worldview and the practices, they go together. You, you can't take them apart. You can't say, oh, I want to just be involved in the, you know, the practices and this is amazing stuff. No, no, you accept the whole kit and caboodle. And that is the danger. Now, let's think about Simon for a second. What's, what's in it for him? Like, why, why is Simon doing these things? We see in this text that he had a, a saying about himself. That is, he called himself great. He's something. He's really something. It's his pride. He, he's, he's gaining power and authority over people. And so it's lifting him up in pride that the dark power which was given him resulted in him gaining a a wrong glory from people, a wrong authority over them. Now you should in this moment be able to recognize that. Remember a text like Matthew chapter four, you know, Jesus is the true son of God. He is the true Israel. And so after his baptism, he's led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested like the people of Israel they immediately grumbled when they were hungry and he was not fed for 40 days and nights. Uh, yet he entrusted himself to God. He didn't turn the stones into bread. But you remember this part. It reads this way in, in verse 8 and 9. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, or him, all these things I will give you. If you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus refused to pursue his own glory this way. He would be glorified. In fact, at the end, right before he goes up into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go baptize the nations. Teach them all to to obey all that I've commanded you. He was going to receive glory, but he wasn't going to get it in some underhanded way by a different spirit. Uh, This is what Simon's error was, is he gave into this other spirit and wanted to receive that glory, not in a way that God determined, not in a way that God had allotted for him. We all have a place in, in the church and in this life and in our vocation, wherever we are, God has determined the amount of power and authority we will have when we do our, do our best. And it is right for us not to, to, to take that which does not belong to us uh, this way. You will get, if you pursue these things, you will get power. But it will not be power in accordance with the gospel. It will, in fact, subvert it. So we must... Um, apply these things a little bit. I, I'm hesitant to do all this because there's lots of stuff that could be said and I don't want to skip over. I'm, I'm going to be kind of general and I'm going to give you two specifics uh, because in, in our age, there's a growing influence even in the church of the occult and really the new age movement. So lots of a, a 
cultic practices really come in from the new age and are, are baptized in a sense and given Christian labels and brought in the church. Now, this is a, from Pew Research Center in 2018, the end of 2018. <clears throat> and obviously we don't believe that everybody who self-proclaims to be a Christian is one, but this is those who proclaim to be an, a, a, not just a Christian, but an evangelical as opposed to other, other types. So more conservative Baptist types, essentially. In 2018, the Pew Research said that people who identify that way, 60% of those held also one New Age belief. And they tested for four of them. Here, here are the four. One, spiritual energy can be found in physical objects. I know I've talked to at least one of you about, about somebody in your families who believes something like that. Uh, psychics, they believe that psychics uh, are, are okay to be used or uh, get uh, revelation from reincarnation, surprisingly, or astrology. Those four. Uh, someone probably in here has dealt with some of those in the past. The, these are new age ideas, as it's called, that have invaded, and they are completely opposed to the Christian worldview. You must abandon those. If those are something you use, those are, are relying on systems that are hostile to Christ and really divine providence and God's sovereignty. <clears throat> now, let me give you two that I want to warn you about. The first one is Enneagram. Uh, this has infiltrated the church in many ways. It's a so-called personality type, which helps you to understand yourself and, and usually live with your spouse in a understanding way. This is something that all Christians, least to greatest, need to reject completely. Enneagram uh, has a sordid history, but there are people who tell the truth. One of the creators of it uh, has openly admitted, you can go look this up even on YouTube, Claudia Naranjo, I think is how you pronounce his name. He is the one who, who came up with what's called Enneatypes. It's from another New Age guy earlier. That's his new label. Has, I won't go into all the stuff that I studied this week, but he openly admits that he received this through automatic writing. If you're not familiar with that term, essentially this is old school, what we call being a medium or being a channel. Uh, he allowed a demonic force to inhabit his body. And however that's done, lots of times it's with hallucinations and all sorts of other drugs, but it, it can be done without that. And he allowed this spirit to communicate through him. This is the system that some malevolent spirit is asking you to trust over what the Bible tells you, what the Bible tells you about yourself. I don't know about you, but as I read scripture, it tells me all sorts of stuff about myself. I don't need to go to any other demonic spirits and what they produce to understand who I am. <laughs> in fact, we need to say there's lots and lots of information. I, I cannot exhaust the amount of time spending in knowing myself. There's a whole field of study in theology called anthropology. That is study of man, study of who we are, who God has made us to be in our image you can read wonderful books about the image of God in us. You can read wonderful books about the, the fall and how it's affected our hearts and minds. You can go to Romans and listen how we, or even Jesus, and talk about the bondage of the will 
and reject a, con- a concept like uh, free will or uh, autonomous free will as it is in philosophical terms. We need to depend on the written word, not secret knowledge that comes from spirits you don't want to trust. Secondly, here's another one that maybe some of you have done uh, and I want to warn you against is yoga. Christians, guys aren't really tempted as much to practice yoga. So if you're a woman especially, do not ever do yoga ever again. Don't do it. It is wrong. It is a, a, comes from a pantheistic worldview. It's a, it's a Hindu worship is what it is. What yoga is essentially, yoga itself, I believe, means union from Sanskrit. And the goal and the practice of yoga is to bring you into a knowledge that you are God and God is all. Pantheism. That's, that's the goal of yoga. That's why it is invented by Hindus long time ago. Isn't it just stretching, Fred? No, stretching is stretching. <laughs> this is not stretching. If you want to stretch, you can stretch. There's lots of good stuff out there. In fact, some of it's like a torture device. You can, you can be way more flexible than you ever should be <laughs> if you really want to be. Trust me. There's, uh, anyways, I could go into some good stories. But I, I've been stretched out in, in football and good night. You just, just go to a martial arts place and say, teach me how to stretch. And they will limber you up. What we need to do is not to participate in things that are intended to worship foreign deities. Um, the most common practice, if you go into a yoga studio as a warm-up, is called sunrise salutation. And this is, uh, most of the poses are intended to, to uh, are, are named after Hindu deities. You know, they have millions. And they are also in order, like some of the handholds and so forth, are intended to conjure up the powers of those spirits. So stretching the way that Hindus believe it and teach what yoga is, is intended to, well, I won't go into all the details, but is a stepping stone to enter into a higher elevated state of mind whereby you can commune and understand the true purpose of the universe, which is namely that you're the deity. And, and so what we want to do is we want to not try to participate those things which are occultic and to participate in modern day forms of magic or, or ways of worshiping pagan gods. If you want to limber up, there's plenty of Christian ways to do that. We don't have to steal from pagans in their worldview. You can't detach the one from the other. It is a sad reality. Um, and I didn't look up very many studies on this. I just, I just have heard this <clears throat> from people who've come out of Hinduism and stuff. Lots of them who come out of Hinduism or Buddhism, uh, a lot of them in modern times have got involved through the door of yoga because that's what it does. It's, it's a stepping stone. You, you're entering into somebody else's worldview and, and the temptation is to adopt it. So many women will go in and within six months or so be involved because you do chanting, you burn incense, you do all these sorts of things which are conjuring up dead spirits. Beware of yoga at a later time, we could talk about 
contemplative prayer. I listen. I'm not ready to talk about it fully, um, but there are people out there. I think Jonathan Rumi is a good example, the, the guy who's Jesus and the Chosen. He's into the Roman, myst, Roman Catholic mystical contemplative prayer. You should completely reject that. Essentially, it's, it's this emptying your mind instead of filling it, meditating on Scripture. <clears throat> I'm not ready to say that that's exactly what Hallow's doing, uh, but he promotes that app, and it leads in that sort of direction. Uh, and the New Agers, by the way, embrace contemplative prayer, <clears throat> sometimes called centering prayer, something to avoid. The, con- the contemplative prayer that you should pursue is value of vision, things that have been richly soaked in the scriptures rather than some of these other things. There's more that we could talk about. There's many, many New Age beliefs that you are probably familiar with. Those are, those are two and a half that, that you should mark and avoid and do what is biblical and right and Christian. Do it in that way. Now, <clears throat> here's the good part. Here's the, here's the wonderful thing. So this is a flashback of what happened. And you have a sort of a battle of the gods, as it were. You have the Christian gospel come in, and these people who are hardened in their sin, even filled with spirits, and are entranced into some of these things, the first thing that we do is Luke specifically uses the same word twice. And, and, and obviously it's in reverse order because one is this account is before the, the previous account. So they're, they're in reverse order. So in reverse order, what we see in verse nine is that they were all from the least to greatest paying attention to Simon. But when the gospel comes in, in verse six, they paid attention Savingly, that is, paid attention. Their minds were open to see the glory of Christ, and so spirits were coming out. They were understanding, savingly, the message of the preached gospel. Secondly, we see that this message is about, you'd be tempted to make it two things. It's really one, and this is what I want to show you, is this message is about, you look at this in verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. We'll talk about baptism and stuff next week. But what you should see is that there is the the power of God in his kingdom being put on display such that the kingdom comes and the demons flee. That's That's how it works here. That's how it works in all of Acts. We might be recognized by, uh, we might recognize it maybe more helpfully to put these two things together. It's one message that's being preached, okay? But he breaks it up in kingdom of God and that of Jesus as Messiah. But we could restate it in another way. You should think of the gospel as the preaching, the good news about the kingdom of the Messiah. It is Christ's kingdom is the good news of the gospel. This is why in Peter's first sermon, which we looked at and have mentioned many, many times, is that Jesus ascends the throne in heaven, and thus he concludes he's been made Lord and Christ, Messiah, King, okay? These two things are one. That's the message of the gospel. So a lot of people 
uh, in our day and age are used to a gospel of mainly only Jesus dying to forgive you of your sins. That's central. Uh, we sing about it every week. We pray about it. We, we have no, uh, no hope unless Christ does that. But they forget the king part, which is the gospel. <laughs> they forget the gospel in preaching the gospel. All of the gospel says that he is king now over you. You must repent. There's no, there's no trying Jesus out. That's why you have lots of preachers when you hear them. They sound like whiny babies petitioning you to, to come, please, accept Jesus. No. Bow the knee. Jesus is Lord. It's an authoritative declaration. And that declaration comes with the forgiveness of sins. That comes with entering into the kingdom of God. So if we understand the message of the gospel rightly as the kingdom that has come in Christ Jesus, let me ask you a question. How do you answer this question? Christ Jesus is ruler over it's God's kingdom, right? God's kingdom where? Somebody. There you go. He said it. We, we, we normally want to say, oh, in, in heaven somewhere. No, 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 no. The kingdom has come on the earth. You see that? That's, that's why the demons are leaving. We just quoted last week, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom has come upon you. Where? Somewhere out there? No, no, right here. It's a spiritual kingdom that is inhabited by physical beings. Namely us, physical and spiritual beings, which is us. So when you, if you want a, a, a couple texts to go to as a proof text, because this is something that you probably haven't been taught very often, go to Matthew chapter 13 in the kingdom parables. You know what he says? He says the kingdom of heaven is like, and you know what he doesn't talk about? The eternal state. He talks about the kingdom here and now, so that the kingdom's like a mustard seed. Where? In, where? On the earth. Here, among us. The kingdom is not coming, he answers the Pharisees, with, with power in the same way that you think about it. You can't say, there it is, or there it is. The kingdom is in your midst, is how Jesus speaks about it. So the kingdom has already started. The kingdom of Christ is inaugurated. And he is Lord over it. And the kingdom is here on earth. And it expands and expands and expands and expands. Until it is a tree so large that all the birds of the heavens can nest in it. The fulfillment of Ezekiel. I'll I'll point that out to you if you'd like later. So what we need to understand is that in the conversion of of these people in Samaria and, and... The faux conversion of Simon himself, we'll see why shortly, is an overthrow of Satan by the kingdom of God. And the kingdom spreads through the preaching of the gospel and through its reception. And it's living in light of, so that when you go and harvest shortly, those of you who are going to do that, here in a, in a, a couple of days, you, you, you drive your tractor in faith, in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. You're working. This is the center of the kingdom, as it were, when we gather together as a church, but it extends as you go out and work.
to the glory of God. You are doing work for and in the kingdom. That is also what we do when we proclaim the gospel. The good news is that Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. And he will do that through our faithful witness and our living in light of the truth of the scriptures. <clears throat> so that, uh, here's, a, here's a text you could go to. Colossians says that he disarmed. It says just rulers and powers. This is obviously demonic rulers and powers. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, specifically on the cross. Jesus has triumphed over the demonic forces and such. Therefore, the kingdom of God is powerful. It will go forth. It will overwhelm the earth such that from sea to shining sea, the glory of God will exist. And this is the hope of the gospel, that it will actually do something. The world will not dissolve and spiral downward and downward and downward until Jesus has to come back and rescue it. No, he did rescue it. That's redemption. That's what he did on the cross. So now it winds upward to heaven, as it were. Before the Spirit is poured out, that's exactly what happens, right? There's just a few members of the church in the Old Testament, and it gets really, really bad. The point of redemption is to say, at its worst, now is the start of the kingdom where it gets better and better and better until the end. Now, let us transition to the Lord's Supper. And I want to make an extended application on this. This is a truly Christian ritual. We are supposed to be involved in rituals, just ones that are prescribed and instituted by the Bible. Baptism as an initiatory, one that... uh, enters us into the door of the church, as it were. And the Lord's Supper is an ongoing ritual that we are supposed to do. We don't chant during the Lord's Supper or anything like that. But the truly Christian ritual is not understood to be a mere memorial. It's not just remembering only, although it is that. Uh, This supper is a spiritual meal to be taken and received by those who have already undergone in the past Christian baptism. And this meal itself is for our spiritual nourishment, is what it says in the confession, and that I think is the biblical proposition. It is one whereby if you actually do it in an unworthy manner, most of us know that you drink judgment on yourself. How's that? It's because there are uh, there's a physical practice, but there are spiritual connotations to it. It, it. it is more than what meets the eye, as it were. And so it's important that we do so as those who have faith in Christ um, and, and are in that moment. Well, let me just say, well, what does, what does it mean? When, when we partake of the supper by faith, we receive God's grace. there's, in a sense, sort of a transaction, as it were. God is is, uh, giving us grace as we partake of of the body and the blood, symbolic of Christ's body and blood. We, We are transformed little by little 
by his saving benefits. We believe the same thing when it comes to the word. We read the word, we believe the word, and we're, we're transformed inside. This is the same thing. It's not a separate thing. It's not <clears throat> some weird sort of concept of infusing grace or something like that. What it really is is the, the, uh, a specific means of God's grace whereby we're supposed to regularly... Oh, that hurts. Oh, sorry, buddy. It's all right. That is a hard ground. We will pray for you when we're when we're done. Now, now, kids, take this as a as a teaching moment. If you get squirrely in your chair, you can fall off it and donk your head, and it hurts. <laughs> so don't do that. <laughs> that is okay. That is okay. Uh, we've all fallen off our chair, Freddie. Don't worry about it. We all struggle against sin. And so the supper, what happens here is we look to Christ who has conquered our sin in the body and blood. And ask for his power by the, the spirit in this supper. We, we receive it so that we might conquer as he has conquered. We receive that sort of grace because we remember and understand who he is. And we know that we're his body. We participate in that. Now, we also <clears throat> receive a grace, another type of grace that we could call the grace of perseverance, if we want to put it that way. We all despair and we all understand the weaknesses of our own heart and our own mind and, and thus live them out in our actions and need to repent. And so the supper looks forward and looks at the, the benefits that Christ has laid out in the gospel, namely that of perseverance. He says, I will not drink this again with you until I do it in, in heaven. This meal, partaken in faith, says, I'm going to make it no matter how weak I am. There's a grace for me here. It, it reminds us of all that he has for us in promise. And so it encourages us. And we see that nothing is withheld from us because he has shed his very own blood and broken his body for us. So now let us, at this point, I will call the men up.